The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, in these few minutes as we're uh, wrapping things up here, not sure how much of this really needs to be said, but we are facing a culture today where... This idea of uh, equalization uh, has become a a religious ideal, a utopian religious ideal. And we see these, the powers of uh, redistribution in the hands of the state, an increasingly totalizing state, as Andrew was explaining to us, so that the church, as we face today and tomorrow, are grappling with the problem of statecraft as it works, as we work for righteousness and justice in our relationships. Now we've seen that when justice is denuded of its biblical dress, it inevitably becomes a kind of progressivist myth. Justice is never actually reached. There's no actual end point to this pursuit. Progressivism has no end in view that it can actually articulate. It's just a constant overturning of God's order. So the challenge that the church faces, and has always faced in one form or another, as Augustine put it, justice being taken away, then what are kingdoms but great robberies? For what are robberies themselves but little kingdoms? It is the religion of humanism that is reinforced, endorsed, and embodied by our modern state that sees itself as the neutral arbitrator in religious matters and has divorced itself from the righteousness of God so that power and authority are now seen as located amongst this elite, these social planners. The modern state's social contract thinking has permeated a great deal of Christian thought then about justice, we've heard, And sometimes, uncritically, the church has looked to the means of the world to do its work, to accomplish its desired ends, adopting various forms of progressivism and Marxism and so forth, putting them in a Christian garb. Uh, When I was uh, in uh, seminary years ago, we, we heard a good deal about liberation theology. Nobody really hears about liberation theology anymore, at least we don't talk about it, because the ideals or ideas of liberation theology have gone mainstream and are now what we call social justice. As uh, David Breeze has put it, what is liberation theology? It is the view that holds that Christ came into the world to be our economic liberator. It asserts that his first purpose was to free the poor and the oppressed from the shackles of economic constriction. In actuality, liberation theology redefines sin. Sin is to possess wealth in the face of the world's poverty. Righteousness is to redistribute that wealth, giving it to the poor. Evangelism is then redefined. It is seen as the announcement of the economic liberation of Christ and the invitation to the oppressed peoples of the world to join the revolution he ordains. So that now... Even issues of human sexuality, homosexuality, gay marriage are seen as social justice issues, the oppressed peoples. 
Now, the Bible, of course, as we've heard, does teach that salvation is not simply for the soul. It does recognize the effects of sin on social structures, but it doesn't offer a civic gospel, a gospel where man creates by by his self-aware revolution his own order defined by man where salvation is no longer mediated by Jesus Christ but some abstract group called the oppressed. Salvation itself then is nothing more than the building of human community in terms of man's socialistic, ecological, and egalitarian and equalitarian ideal. And in that instance, it means that the gospel is not that which is transforming people, where God's will is heard and obeyed. Rather, the kingdom is seen only as man's struggle against alienation and exploitation until he achieves his eco-social justice. And that means, and we've seen it in modern evangelicalism, the death and resurrection of Jesus starts to become increasingly irrelevant. Mankind takes center stage, and he saves himself as he works for justice, social justice. The question is for us, is our hope for the world, the kingdom of God found in Jesus Christ, as he teaches us to love our neighbor, spilling out in voluntary generosity as a challenge to the world, or is it a revolutionary hope that requires the coercive powers of an interventionist state elite offering a gospel and increasingly an apocalypse, climate change, that cannot be reconciled with Scripture. The issue today is not really about concern for the poor, you see. If it were about concern for the poor, the world would be interested in biblical answers, and it would not stand in the way of charity. Do you know how difficult it was for us as a church to establish a charitable organization to help children? Do you know how many legal hurdles there are, insurance hurdles there are in the way of helping other people in our culture? You see, what we have is two plans of salvation and two different types of judgment. One is social and ecological, the other is moral. And all this runs counter to the view that human beings are given, as we heard from Andrew, a stewardship. A rule over the creation to care, to cultivate, to develop, to transform the wilderness of human society and life into God's garden. That's what Eden was. That's what the priesthood represented in ancient Israel as their robes decorated with pomegranates and the symbols of Eden. It's what the tabernacle represented. As we take these raw materials and make them into useful instruments of culture, of commerce, and Christian civilization. And that means that production and conservation and replenishment or stewardship are a mandate in order that creation is not plundered, but cultivated and its resources developed and replenished for the blessing of mankind. In fact, you know, St. Paul tells us that creation itself groans waiting for man to take his proper place in Jesus Christ and for the redemption, the restitution, the restoration of all things, the redemption of our bodies. The earth cries out for its cultivation in terms of the kingdom of God so that our freedom in Jesus Christ actually spells freedom for creation and for all people as we spread the gospel. 
And it comes in and through us as God's children as we live to the glory of God. And the final hope that Paul holds out in Romans 8, 20 through 24 is a final and total freedom from all corruption for all of creation. If the gospel then of the kingdom tries to circumvent God's people and God's law and employs the hermeneutics of liberation and humanization, what happens is salvation is no longer located in Christ and his redemptive work. It's located somehow in creation itself, in the socioeconomic power of man exercised primarily through the state. And that might take this Marxist environmentalist model or a capitalist interventionist model. It doesn't matter which. It's a counterfeit doctrine of salvation, a counterfeit soteriology, and a distortion of the kingdom of God. And this is the danger that is at work in the social justice movement that is everywhere in the church today. You see, the fall brought about the atomization and selfishness that dominates our fragmented society today. We're not denying that it's fragmented, that it's selfish, that it's uncaring for the most part. But the modern state fails to recognize the problem of sin and the consequent alienation from God and therefore our fellow human beings. And it offers its counterfeit soteriology, its doctrine of salvation, trying to effect peace by force without the redemption of Jesus Christ. It's only through the gospel and through God's people where genuine friendship with God and neighbor are made possible within this community of love that obeys the commandments of God, where God's love is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, that true peace and true justice are made possible. Now, without this saving order in Christ, the new love is coercive. Both the church and modern state are aiming at brotherhood and community, but that can only be imagined in one of two ways. You either enforce it by a requirement of state policy where people's will is violated and there is a false semblance of brotherhood obtained where liberty is lost, or community and brotherhood by God's saving grace is manifest in a free community of free associations of loving generosity in the family of God. With a state reduced to biblical limits, where it deals with remedial justice, and it doesn't interfere in every aspect of people's lives. Now, granted, that model risks tension. It risks divisions. But it offers, therefore, true community, as well as personal and social freedom. And responsibility involves risk. Do we prefer to be a slave culture, a slave people, or a free people under God in Jesus Christ? Now, in any theory of social or public justice, sin and evil are the problem that we are confronting. There's no question about that. And the way that the humanism or paganism of our time, the social justice movements of our time deal with it is to say that evil and sin is in the environment that it is in, it's personified really, in the clergy, in the church, in the family. 
as Dr. Masson was telling us, in the wealthy, in the bourgeoisie, in the churches, in Christian morality, in private enterprise, in property, in free organizations. This is the problem, they say. The state's power to change that environment is their saving grace by the elimination of true Christianity. And that becomes then the political priority because it stands in the way of this revolution. Now, the Christian faces the same problem of sin in two ways. And this is what we've been outlining. First, human government is simply God's servant. It's God's minister of justice. Romans 13, 4. And it's called upon to establish in the Bible restitution, restoration of God's order, not coercive redistribution as the basic premise of law and justice. Second, the church, the Christian church, ministers by word and deed the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And that brings us into a true communion with God and with each other in a social order of righteousness that's manifest by obedience. The communion feast or the Eucharist symbolizes, in a sense, the essence of our existence as God's people. It's actually a form of Christian libertarianism against the totalizing pretensions of the modern state with its counterfeit soteriology and its false idea of justice. Now, in a sense, the problem that we're facing is a logical one because there is an ineradicable desire in human beings for social reunification. Why do you think the UN exists? Why do you think UNESCO exists? Why do you think all of these international bodies exist? There's a desire in man in his political salvations to reunite humankind. And they're trying to do it because of a, a sense of a loss of an original unity. But they reject why that happened. That is the loss of our original unity in the garden of God. And our scattering throughout the world in enmity with God and with one another. Now that unity can only be restored not by the destruction of diversity. Our social fragmentation can only be healed when we actually participate with and in the man of justice and his body, Jesus Christ. Now we're dual citizens, the Bible makes clear. We have a heavenly citizenship as well as an earthly one. And as such, we do not seek escape from this wrestling for righteousness and justice in the world, but we declare the interruption of Christ into the false politics of the earthly city. Our worship, as Andrew has told us, is not purely inward, it's public. In fact, liturgy means literally public work. Uniting in Christ heaven and earth. That's why our worship is public. And it reveals that the earthly city lacks true justice because it fails to worship God and it fails to love one's neighbor as it should. Now, it's the announcement of the kingdom of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that proclaims Christ alone is offering real justice and puts, therefore, the status story in opposition with the Christian story. The English theologian William Kavanagh describes this plot against the church. He puts it this way. The church above all must be defeated in order for salvation to take place. 
When Hobbes and Rousseau imagined the emergent state in the 17th and 18th centuries, they understood quite clearly the imperative to defeat the lesser associations within the state body in order to vanquish multiplicity. The intervention of the state in matters of kinship, property, and inheritance. The concept of law as something made or legislated by the state rather than disclosed from its divine source. And the abolition of ecclesial courts and the transfer of sole judicial proprietorship to the crown. The replacement of local duties and privileges by the rights of interchangeable individuals. The enclosure of common lands. The state's securing of monopoly over legitimate violence. In other words, what the state has done is it swallowed the church and the family and all these lesser associations in trying to incorporate us all into a counterfeit communion. A new saving order. A copy of the body of Christ where justice is found and where unity and diversity, freedom and responsibility, love and justice flourish amongst a free people. And what we've been saying today is that until we recognize this, the struggle towards erroneous visions of justice in the social order that are proliferating in the churches will oppose, actually, and work against our evangelistic efforts. Christians have accepted this integrating role of the state to govern everything. The false premise that the secular, as we heard, is some sort of neutral apparatus resolving all conflicts of interest. But the just kingdom of Christ that we heard was first manifest in the Hebrew nation and is now made known in and through the kingdom people, that is, the church of Jesus Christ, brings us into an understanding of the politics, the social order, I should say, of unity in diversity that is found in God himself. See, Augustine was correct in seeing history as a struggle, really, between two societies, between two cultures, between two ideas about reality, the city of God and the earthly city. All the kingdoms of this world, with their pretensions to justice, the Bible says, will pass away. I mean, where are all these ancient empires and kingdoms today that were supposed to last and end history? They're gone. But the empire of Jesus Christ continues. All the kingdoms of this world will pass away. It's only Christ's kingdom that will stand. So when you ask, is there any hope? Look at the state of things. Look at the mess that everything's in. Scripture says, everything that can be shaken will be shaken. So that only that which cannot be shaken will remain. The covenant people of God are the social union of true believers. And we are the instrument through which God is releasing his grace into the world through history. A true commonwealth then, by definition, must be Christian. A true commonwealth must be Christian commenting on Augustine's claim that no pagan establishment can realize true justice, uh, Professor Sabine notes, he says, 
It is a contradiction in terms to say that a state can render to everyone his own, so long as its very constitution withholds from God the worship which is his due. If justice is justice for God and for man, how can a state ever be just which refuses to give God his due? It will obviously then refuse to give man his due on the horizontal level because it won't give God his due. The Augustinian conclusion logically follows, says Sabine, no state can be just since the advent of Christianity unless it is also Christian, and a government considered apart from its relation to the church would be devoid of justice. Thus, the Christian character of the state was embedded in the universally admitted principle that its purpose is to realize justice and right, to uphold justice and right. If it's to uphold justice, and and the Bible says it is God's minister of justice, it has to be Christian. The psalmist puts it effectively. Psalm 2. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. And if that interpretation of the gospel and of justice of the kingdom that we've been speaking to you about today is true, where God's people are a manifestation and model of justice and righteousness through the gospel, then our role, very simply as I close now in this last minute, is twofold. First, true justice for pilgrim members of the city of God consists in sharing with others, first and foremost, forgiveness of sins, preaching the gospel. And then living out that kingdom life as members of a transnational, alternate society of righteousness, symbolized by our unity together as the body of Christ in communion. Secondly, as salt and light in the earth, we call upon the authorities that exist to conform themselves to God's justice, disclosed in his word. So that, the, and so that we might witness the seasoning impact of the gospel of the kingdom that's already at work through his people, destroying injustice, bringing liberty and freedom in people's relationships. Now, this regeneration and transformation of the world is the glorious task of the work of the Holy Spirit through God's people. Because all things are being brought into subjection to Jesus Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, so that God may be all in all. Do you know you're involved in the most marvelous, the most incredible project? (laughs) You are part of the restoration or the restitution of all things to Jesus Christ. The renewal of his creation, which he brings to total completion at the eschaton. You're part of that turning God's creation into a culture in terms of Jesus Christ and his word. Could there be any, I mean, we get excited about projects. We get excited when there's a new building or a new school or a new this or a new that, or even if we're renovating our own house about the end product or starting a new business. You and I have been enlisted into the new humanity in Jesus Christ to participate in his making all things new. It begins with our regeneration. So that he may be all in all. Justice, righteousness is something we are. We are justified 
and something we live. We're made righteous. We live righteously from the core of our being. As scripture says, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And that means we should be the happiest, most purpose-filled, most hopeful people on the face of the earth. As you look around the world today and you watch the news, what other hope is there than the gospel of the kingdom? Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.